I'd invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, or you most likely have this printed for you in the worship handout for this morning. But follow along with me as I read this passage in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our desire, Father, would be that your Holy Spirit would grant us uh, all spiritual wisdom and knowledge uh, in your word, so that in understanding your word and believing it and trusting it, Uh, we might be those who would bear fruit in every good work, uh, that we might live to the calling that you've called us to as Christians, that we might grow in our knowledge of you, and that with respect to all the difficulties of life, we would find in you uh, all the strength and perseverance and endurance by your own great might to enable us to live as you want us to live, that we would be those, those who would be thankful and joyful in all that you have done for us as believers. Enable us always to be able to confess that it's you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that it's you who have delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And we pray that as we hear your word, uh, that great truths by which we are saved would be brought home to us again. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This morning, this is the fourth message on a kind of small series that began actually in Psalm uh, 71, verses 12 through 16. And I want to go back and reflect upon some of the basic insights and biblical truths that we were able to derive from uh, that section in that old man's psalm. Uh, three main ideas, and then to note how these three main ideas are tightly correlated with what we find here in Romans chapter 8, beginning with the ministry of the Holy Spirit on to the ministry of the Father, and now the ministry of Christ. So in Psalm 71, uh, verses 12 and 13, uh, the old man prayed this way, O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. 
may my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. Now, when we examine that, we recognize that this verse comes out of the human predicament, that is, the human condition in general. That is to say, the conditions within a fallen world. And then we noted how this impact the old man, the psalmist, and how it impacts Christians in terms of the Christian predicament, which is to say that the apostle Paul would say that in this present world, uh, we have the sufferings of this present age. We live in a fallen world. And therefore, in the fallen world, what is essentially the case is that human beings are in conflict with one another. But even particularly, human beings are in opposition and live their lives in opposition to God, to the God of all creation. And therefore, they live their lives in opposition to Christ, who is the Savior. And then they also live their lives in opposition to those who would follow Jesus. We've noted that in the conditions of the world, uh, this opposition is interminable. It's unceasing uh, since Genesis 3 to now to the end of the world. It's going to be unrelenting. In all the circumstances that we face as Christians, this kind of conflict is going to be a constant reality. Uh, this is why so many of the prayers that we find in the Psalms, like this old man's prayer, have so much of this God, please help me kind of voice. We're always going to be praying for help because of the suffering that exists within this present age because of the opposition of the world to God and to Christ and to us. Then in looking at Romans chapter 8, we noted that in response to this, as it were, in response to our own needs to pray, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because in the context of the fallenness of the world, in the context of the oppositions and conflicts we face in the world, we so often do not know how to pray as we ought. Uh, we suffer. We suffer the human predicament. We come up against the opposition of the world and even the kinds of things we face in our culture. And we often do not know how to pray or to pray anything better than God, please help us. We don't know what to pray for with any greater specificity. We're at a loss for words. That's where the Apostle Paul teaches us that the Holy Spirit is constantly interceding for us. His ministry is to pray for us to advocate for us in all of the circumstances that we're going to and all of the suffering that we're going through so that in terms of the troubles that we face in this world, which we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit constantly prays for us. That's a great comfort to us to know that as unrelenting as the world's opposition is to us, the Holy Spirit is always interceding for us with those conditions in mind. And then back to Psalm 71, verse 14 said, the old man said, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. And we recognize there that the old man is speaking about a hope that is infallible. His lifelong hope in God. God has been with him all of his long life, sustaining him, always being his rock of refuge, his very strength, showing him many troubles and distresses and yet raising him up again. So that toward the end of this psalm, the old man recognizes that he has the promise of the resurrection and glorification. Because in Psalm 71, 20 to 21, he prays this way, Lord, you who have made me see many 
troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. Those verses look to the end of life, to death itself, to the resurrection from the dead, and to the greater greatness and comfort that will come in our future glory. Again, the connection with Romans chapter 8, we would find in verses 28 to 32. Paul points to the ministry of God the Father as giving us this infallible hope. That is, in response to the ministry of the Holy Spirit's prayers for us, the Father causes all things to work together for our good, the good of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And the infallible guarantee that the Father does this has been called that golden chain of redemption. This is what makes our hope infallible, that in eternity past, God foreknew and predestined us to be called to a saving faith in Christ, to be justified in Christ, to be glorified in Christ, so that we are able to confess that if God is for us, who can be against us? Because God has purposed to be for us. As Paul shows in what he writes, this hope ultimately, as we will see, is based and built upon nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Romans 8.32, Paul says, The Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. Now, the third thing we observe from Psalm 71, or verses 15 and 16, where the psalmist says, My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. And here we noted that the old man speaks about the immutable righteousness of God. This is the theme that is the foundation of his praise and worship of God. It is the righteousness of God that never changes. And this immutable righteousness of God is the foundation of God's salvation in every way. That brings us again to the book of Romans, where we should note that the righteousness of God is, in fact, one of the major dominant themes of Paul's exposition. Paul announces this this at the very beginning. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you go on to chapter 3, the theme appears again very strongly in the argument of what Paul is laying out. Verse 21-22, where Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Then in chapter 4, he cites Abraham as an example of someone who received the gift of righteousness by faith. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then the Apostle Paul places the free gift of righteousness through Christ in contrast to the death that we have all received from Adam. 
This is in chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul writes, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the great theme of the book of Romans brings us always to the work of Christ, the Son, and brings us to his immutable righteousness, which is the constant and central theme of the gospel. And to speak of what is immutable is to speak of that which will never change. Now, for the purpose of the message today, uh, there are words that I have borrowed. Uh, I have borrowed these words to express what Paul teaches about the immutable righteousness of God. And these words come from our closing hymn. My hope is built on nothing less. Words from that first stanza of that great hymn express the central idea of what we want to talk about as we look at these verses. It's the main truth. It's the big idea. And they also state the proper response to the great truth that Paul writes about. So here's the great truth. Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the great truth. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the proper response is this. We do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Or in other words, because our hope is built on Christ as the solid rock, his blood, his righteousness, we don't trust anything within ourselves, even the sweetest frame of mind, but we wholly lean on Jesus' name. We wholly lean upon the person and work of Christ. Let me point out something that the hymn writer means by this that is very significant. The hymn writer speaks of not trusting the sweetest frame. What he means by that is we ought never to trust our inward emotions in this matter of our salvation and Christ. Even when the sweetest frame is what you possess, even when your inward emotions are happy in God, happy in your salvation, happy in all that God has done for you, we must not trust this frame of mind or this frame of emotions that reflect our emotional condition. Because the hymn writer is correct. We are not supposed to trust in how we feel about the gospel or how we feel about Christ or how we feel about the cross or how we feel about the love of God in Christ. To trust the sweetest frame is actually to trust in ourselves, our own feelings, our own experience. In contrast, the thrust of the hymn, as it's properly biblical, is the thrust of this whole passage that we have before us. It points to Christ. 
It points to trusting in Christ himself. It points to trusting in his blood and righteousness. It calls us to faith and trust that wholly leans on Jesus' name. Because Christ is a solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. So that's what I want to talk about. I want us to look at these verses in light of the immutable righteousness of Christ, a a righteousness that never changes, a gift of God's grace. And I want to look at it from the standpoint of three things that we can find in this passage. The gift of God's righteousness to us in Christ is, first of all, a gift that, as it's given, will never be withdrawn from us. And secondly, it's a gift that, as it's given to us, it's invincible against all accusations to discredit us. And then lastly, it is a gift that never diminishes, although the world wages war against us. So first of all, God's righteousness in Christ is a gift given at such a cost that will never be withdrawn from us. Verses 31 and 32, where Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now first, note the cost of the gift. God gave up his son for us. This is proof that God is on our side, that God is for us. God has given us nothing less than his own son, the gift, the greater of which cannot be conceived. It is the ultimate. It is the greatest possible demonstration of God's love and commitment to us. Paul said so, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But further, this gift of the Son is the gift of God's righteousness in Christ to us. Paul has said so. Romans 5.17 Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. To receive the gift of God's Son is to receive the free gift of righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ himself. But thirdly and most significantly, God will never take back what God has given. It it could hardly be the case that God is for us if God ever decided to reverse his course of redemption, ever decided to retake Christ from us, ever decided to undo the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. In fact, it's most evident among the all things that come to us freely through the gift of the Son is the certainty that this gift is of grace, a grace that's truly unconditional, a grace that is most free, a grace that does not depend upon our performance at all. And therefore, there will never be in us any cause 
for God to take from us what God has freely given. It is no less than what the Apostle Paul has said in Romans eleven twenty nine, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So the gift of God's righteousness in Christ that saves us is truly of grace. It's as Paul has proclaimed it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of our works or of our performance or of our deeds of righteousness, but it is wholly the gift of God's work in Christ so that no one can boast. And this is why Christ and Christ alone is our solid rock. This is why we lean wholly on Jesus' name. This is the gift that will never be taken from us ever. And then verses 33 and 34, where Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, these verses declare to us that God's righteousness in Christ is a gift given with such divine protections that it is invincible against all accusations to discredit us or to dislodge us from our secure relationship to Christ or to somehow try to disinherit disinherit us from all the glories that we shall have in Christ. Now, Paul uses two rhetorical questions, questions that demand a decisive no in order to teach this very thing. Verse 33, who will bring any charge or accusation against God's elect? Verse 34, who is there to condemn God's elect? First, we ought to recognize that Paul is raising a possibility even though he's going to answer no, he raises a possibility that Scripture itself illustrates. Think about the book of Job. Think about the backstory of Job's sufferings. The scene in heaven where Satan, as the accuser, comes before God to accuse Job of being insincere in his devotion and trust in God. Or think about Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Where John hears a loud voice in heaven that says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So the reality of accusations and charges against God's own people are real. But not just from Satan and the powers of darkness. There come constant accusations against the people of God from the religious people of other religions in the world and from secular people of all different perspectives and viewpoints. For instance, if we insist that Christ is the only way of salvation, we're condemned for being narrow-minded, for being bigoted. We're condemned for condemning everyone who isn't a Christian to hell. 
And if we refuse to believe that blind, purposeless forces of nature can provoke non-life to give life, give rise to life, or that the mind can come out of mindless matter, uh, we're condemned for being opposed to science and to human progress. And woe unto us if we remain convinced on the basis of real science that human life and human persons actually begin with conception. And woe to us if we remain convinced again by real science that it takes a real man and a real woman to cause human conception to take place at all. Woe unto us. Holding to the truth of Scripture and to the truth of the created world exposes us to accusations and the condemnation of the world. But recognize that those accusations are based upon lies. They're based upon things that are not true. What about valid accusations? What about our true guilt in the eyes of the law of God? Our actual sins make us accusable, indictable, criticizable, condemnable, because we are truly guilty of incontestably evil thoughts and words and deeds. You see, the real truth is, is that not all accusations that might be brought against us would be either unfair or unjustified, as though we were innocent, because we're not. But thanks be to God, it is not our innocence that makes these two questions rhetorical. Rather, it is what God has done himself through Christ. God has granted a full immunity from any prosecution, from any accusation, from any condemning charge that might be brought against us. Who can accuse? Who can condemn? No one. Because Paul says in verse 33, it is God who justifies. This means it is God who declares righteous all of those who are accused by the power of darkness in the heavenly realms. The true judge has declared us righteous in his sight in Christ. Verse 34, Christ himself is the only person who's qualified to condemn sinners. The resurrected and ascended Lord know what Christ is doing. The only one who could possibly condemn us sits at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding. He's advocating for God's elect. And think about the content of what Jesus advocates. If we think correctly about Jesus and his role as an intercessor, as both the victim and the high priest, he's a defense advocate for us. The case that he presents to the Father is not the record of our works, but it's the record of his own work on our behalf. Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as the representative and substitute of God's elect, of all who believe in him. Jesus advocates what he has done for us 
in his morally perfect life, how he actively obeyed all and every aspect of the law of God perfectly, and then how he died the full and sufficient expiation and propitiation for our sins, bearing all our iniquities, carrying all our sorrows, so that by his stripes we are healed. And this full work of Christ is the righteousness of God in Christ, the gift given to all who truly believe. This is what Christ advocates before the majesty on high. And the work of Christ is invincible against all accusations made against us, against everything and all those who would seek to discredit us. The gift of God's righteousness in Christ stands invincible. But this must also include our own hearts and consciences. The New Testament recognizes that the hearts of believers and the consciences of believers can condemn them. We can find within ourselves the fact that we are heavy laden with the shame of our guilty conscience accusing and condemning us because of our sins. There is no antidote for this except what God has given to us in Christ. It is that which we must preach to our own hearts. Even as David did in Psalm 103, David says to his own soul, forget not all God's benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who redeems your life from the pit, who does not deal with you as your sins deserve, who does not repay you for your iniquities, who removes your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. We must diligently remind our own hearts that it is the work of Christ that has expiated and propitiated all our sin and given us the full pardon of God. Therefore, where, wherever the Father, whomever the Father justifies, whomever the Father declares righteous, we must not accuse. If God has declared us righteous, we must not condemn ourselves. Or the Son advocates, we must not condemn ourselves. We must, in faith, cease our own hearts' attacks against the righteousness of God in Christ that has been given to us as a free gift. Where we have sinned, the call is to trust Christ and to repent, not trust Christ and to condemn. We must believe the words of Jesus who says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look to Christ alone, the solid rock on which we stand. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, nor dare we believe the worst frame. Rather, we must wholly lean on Jesus' name, the name that makes us invincible 
against all the accusations of the world, the flesh, and the devil that would seek to discredit us before God. And then finally, we come to verses 35 to 39. God's righteousness in Christ is a gift that never diminishes, although the world wages war against us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul emphasizes here, the whole of creation wages war against us. These words summarize those agents that are the sufferings of this present age that Paul mentions in verse 18. But what stands firm, unyielding, immutable, unchanging, is the love of God in Christ. But we must not miss this necessary truth and this necessary connection. Enfolded within this unbreakable love of God in Christ Jesus is his immutable righteousness revealed in his Son. It must necessarily be the case that if this love never diminishes, it is because the gift of God's righteousness in Christ never diminishes. Because that righteousness of Christ that saves us never diminishes. Because it is immutable, unchangeable, steadfast, never changing, never growing smaller never diminishing. It is a perfect righteousness credit to us, the gift of God's love to us in his son. And therefore, it always stands. It never changes in the face of the world that wages war against us. As Luther says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And here is the truth. Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so we finish where we began. What God has given to us as a gift will never be withdrawn from us. It is a gift that is invincible against all accusations that seek to discredit us. And it is such a gift that it will never diminish, though the whole world wages war against us. Because the gift is nothing less than the immutable righteousness of Christ the solid rock on which we stand. Amen.
Let's pray. Our God and our Father, enable us to lean in every way in the fullness of faith and trust and belief and conviction and commitment on Jesus' name. And may this be how we live, not on the sinking sand of our emotions, but on the solid rock of Christ. To his glory. Amen.